by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the United States' history of destabilization, regime change, and chaos, and what that may mean for the war in Ukraine. Also going to be talking about class, race, and displacement uh, in Washington, D.C. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie... Tell them what's on your mind. Well, who needs a PR firm to spin a war? Why, Ukraine does. That's who. Apparently, in the London Bridge subway station in the UK, there are ads on the large digital displays throughout the station that read, Be brave like Ukraine. Journalist Michael Tracy tweeted pictures of the displays and revealed that they're part of a massive PR campaign launched by the Ukrainian government in capital cities of foreign countries to bolster support for those countries sending more weapons, which means sending more of the people's money, to Ukraine. And yes, this is a new campaign and not just in London, but in other major cities like New York. And don't be surprised if you see them popping up in D.C. sometime soon, too. The PR campaign is not launched by the Ukrainian government alone, though. Oh, no, they've hired a legit PR firm, several of them to come up with the splashy but subdued campaign imagery and slogans. One of those firms, Michael Tracy points out, is identified right on the campaign's website. It is Publicis Group, one of the largest PR firms in the world. Now, I don't recall Publicis Group or any other PR firm in the world developing a campaign for, oh, I don't know, Palestinians or Somalians or Yemenis or Syrians or Congolese. But this nice group of professional public relations professionals at Publicis Group, who I'm sure worked on this campaign out of the kindness of their anti-war heart, was accused of helping the Saudis whitewash serious human rights abuses by distributing an article that claimed the Saudi regime was carrying out a legal court sentence against extremists and terrorists when it executed 47 people in January 2016. When the truth was, the people they murdered were all nonviolent activists. Some of them were teenagers. The U.K.-based human rights group Reprieve wrote to publicists raising concerns about the article that was published in Newsweek magazine, but distributed by Corvus MSL Group, a subsidiary of publicists that had been working with the Saudi government at the time for more than a decade. And due to the public scrutiny and pressure that Reprieve generated, the letter disappeared from the Corvus website the next day after Reprieve published their letter. But publicists continued to provide PR support to the repressive, repeat human rights violating Saudi regime. The Saudi Now website was launched soon after by the regime's embassy and provides lots of nice positive news on the goings-on in the kingdom and its economic development. And even though the letter defending the mass execution of dissidents disappeared, the Saudi regime's Twitter account regularly identifies dissidents who have been arrested, tortured, or met a worse fate as terrorists or sedition instigators. 
I'm pretty sure Corvus publicists provided their expertise on those projects, too. This seems to be some of what the publicist group does, putting a splashy, youthful, inspiring face on state repression, at least since the mid-2000s, with the Saudi government. Which leads me to ask, if a country is really defending itself in a war, why do they need a PR campaign to convince the world that they are? In other news, Israel bombed a city in Gaza yesterday, and this was after they violently and repugnantly assaulted worshipers in the Al-Aqsa Mosque again during Ramadan observances. I'm waiting for the Be Brave Like Palestine campaign, but I'm not holding my breath on any PR firm creating that. We'll do that ourselves like we've always done in the streets. But the head of the World Health Organization has criticized the world's near obsession with the war in Ukraine, arguing quite accurately that the only reason the Western world is so hyper-focused on Ukraine is because the victims of that war are white. Dr. Tedros Adnaham Ghebreyesus questioned whether, quote, the world really gives equal attention to black and white lives, given that ongoing emergencies in Ethiopia, Yemen, Afghanistan, and Syria had garnered only a fraction of the concern as Ukraine. Ghebreyesus said, as we speak, people are dying of starvation in Tigray. This is one of the longest and worst sieges by both Eritrean and Ethiopian forces in modern history. I'll ask for him where the slick campaign for Tigrayans is, but I'm not holding my breath for that one either. He acknowledged that the war in Ukraine was globally significant, but asked whether other crises were being accorded enough attention. He said, I need to be blunt and honest that the world is not treating the human race the same way. Some are more equal than others. He described the situation in Tigray as tragic and said he hopes the world comes back to its senses and treats all human life equally. You know, the last part is really the only part of Gabrielle's comments that I disagree with. Everything else was honestly, the quiet part out loud and the obvious truth. But his last comment that he hopes the world will come back to its senses and treat all human life equally. Well, that's not based in a reality that's ever existed. The world has never treated all human life equally. None of the governments have, certainly. And all we need to do is look at the governments that the U.S. government and its imperialist allies in Europe have overthrown, destabilized, caused wars in, and committed assassinations in to control their resources. Because before the U.S., the EU, and NATO got its clutches in Ukraine, they did the same things they've done there in countries where the people in the crosshairs didn't elicit the heart-wrenching emotional empathy from Americans, people who look a lot like you and me. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. 
And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Dan Kavalik, the author of No More War, How the West Violates Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Dan, I feel like if we take a look at how the U.S. government, the uh, national security state, is orienting towards the war in Ukraine, I mean, it really feels like we're seeing a repeat of a pattern that uh, the U.S. has sort of gone through throughout the years in its um, effort to obtain what they call full spectrum dominance, this uh, a sort of imperialist drive for control of the earth, actually. And um, you published a piece about just this issue recently with Covert Action magazine entitled From Iran, Syria and Afghanistan to Ukraine, U.S. Empire Sows Violence and Chaos Yet Again. And and this is an important point and and just one of many things that I think uh, most people in the United States sort of miss because of how, you know, propagandized and misinformed um, a lot of people in this country tend to be because of the incessant propaganda from mainstream media outlets and the U.S. government. And uh, I really think I want to start with, you know, the historic example of um, Afghanistan and the whole issue of the Mujahideen, because we've seen people like, you know, Hillary Clinton sort of openly um, advocate for a a Mujahideen model uh, as it pertains to the war in Ukraine. And we know that there is this long history of the U.S. government um, supporting and arming uh, uh, terrorists and other reactionary elements. I mean, in the case of Ukraine, I mean, it's known about the uh, neo-Nazi elements that are present in uh, the military and police institutions. But how do you see um, Afghanistan and the whole issue with the Mujahideen as sort of similar or too connected to what we're seeing in uh, Ukraine, Dan? Because uh, I just feel like Washington has proven that, uh, frankly, it's willing to you know, do anything or support anyone, regardless of what it may mean for the future, as long as U.S. imperialism's interests are sort of satisfied for the moment. Yeah, well, we if we go back to the Mujahideen and we go back to what uh, Brzezinski, uh, Carter's national security advisor, said about the Mujahideen, he was the intellectual author of our policy in Afghanistan in the 70s. Um, he made it clear that the goal was to draw the Soviets into Afghanistan and give them their own Vietnam. These are his words. Now, most people think or miss either they never knew or they misremember. They think that the U.S. started backing the Mujahideen after the Soviets invaded in order to ward off the invasion. In fact, it's the opposite. They began supporting the Mujahideen before any intervention by Russia and the Soviet Union uh, in order to draw them into a war that would undermine the Soviet Union. And that worked. Uh, In fact, Brzezinski would later admit that was the goal because he believed it worked, so he bragged about it. And he said, and who cares that, uh, you know, in the process, you know, we unleashed these jihadist forces. He didn't call them that. He said, you know, these radical Muslims. 
And so we see a very similar thing in Ukraine. And again, we know this is what you know. You referred to Hillary Clinton. She's been very open about the fact that she wants a protracted war in Ukraine, again, simply to wear down Russia economically, militarily, morally, politically. And so none of this, you know, shows any concern for the Afghan people or for the Ukrainian people who are mere fodder, mere tools in this um, this chess game against Russia, as, as Brzezinski referred to it. And, you know, again, interestingly, or quite tellingly, in fact, the jihadists that the U.S. was supporting in Syria, you know, which had the same strategy, many of them have gone to Ukraine to fight alongside the radical right elements in Ukraine. So, again, not only do we see a similar strategy as we did in Afghanistan, we see the very same types of people fighting in, in those wars. And you also wrote, Dan, uh, in 2018, after you visited Iran, that there is a battle for civilization taking place. You said specifically a battle for civilization, not a battle of civilization. How does the current conflict in Ukraine and the through line that you just laid out between the way the U.S. has used or backed these uh, radical, uh, not radical, or extremist fundamentalist uh, uh, elements to draw the Soviet Union into a protracted uh, conflict, how does this conflict uh reflect the battle for civilization uh, that you were talking about then? Yeah, so I think what certainly Russia views it in that way, in the sense that Russia understands, and again, the U.S. is very open about its goal of destabilizing Russia. And what, what does that mean, to destabilize a country? It means to undermine their institutions, their cultural institutions, their societal institutions, and, and really to destroy their civilization, as we have destroyed the civilizations in Iraq, Afghanistan, tried to do the same in Syria, almost got away with it, except for Russia's intervention, which stopped it. Libya, you go down the line, Russia sees this, that this is the goal, is to destroy Russia as a country, as a culture, as a people. And that is why they ended up intervening in Ukraine. They, they saw that you know, they not only claim that they, you know, there was an existential threat to them. In fact, there is an existential threat to them. And I think it's not even a secret. And they felt if they didn't act now, uh, they would not survive uh, as a nation. And so uh, I think, you know, that's how we see this battle for civilization. And I think Iran sees the same thing. If, they, if the U.S. got their way, they'd destroy, you know, Persia's centuries old, many centuries old civilization there. We see the the Yemeni civilization being destroyed by the U.S.-backed war there. So essentially the U.S. is taking a sledgehammer to the world, and there are some countries resisting that, and I think Russia is, is really chief among them at this point. Yeah, and, you know, to call it a battle for civilization, I, I think is rather accurate, because if we look at 
the war in Ukraine and the role that the U.S. is playing in continuing to um, supplying all these weapons and Joe Biden, I believe it was just last week, um, pledging 800 million more dollars to just that effort. is something that's not only going to continue to exacerbate uh, the suffering of the Ukrainian people, but the ultimate aim of this, which, you know, is a reality that is being obscured from the masses of the American people, is how the U.S. ultimately wants to use Ukraine as a means of open conflict with Russia to nuclear armed uh, governments. And in which case, if those two nuclear armed governments were to come into open conflict, that could have potentially catastrophic implications, not for Washington, not just for Moscow, but the whole of humanity and for the welfare of the earth as we know it. And we were talking about uh, Zbigniew Brazil a moment ago. I mean, even if we look at, you know, this book that he's most known for, uh, The Grand Chessboard, I I think, you know, when we look at these ruling class figures, because that's really what they are, you know, I I look at this sort of from um, a a class perspective and who's really pushing this and who stands to gain. It's certainly not the masses of poor working and oppressed people in the U.S., Russia, or Ukraine. But even in describing you know, the earth or the geopolitical field, if you will, as a chessboard, you know, as a game to be played where, you know, pawns and pieces are moved around and and manipulated for for their ends. You know, for me, Dan, it's hard not to see that these ruling class elements in the U.S. that are really pushing and supporting this war are literally playing a game with our lives and with the lives of uh, people across the planet. And and you're someone who has been able to do on the ground reporting from places like uh, uh, Syria, another country that is under attack by the U.S., though it poses no existential threat to uh, the U.S. at all. It's just an important country from the standpoint of Washington for U.S. control in the region. And so it, it just seems, and not even just it seems, I think it's been sort of shown conclusively that uh, the U.S. is willing to carry out battle in every stage, whether it's it's sort of on the ground with, you know, guns and weapons and bombs or even an atomic bomb to, you know, the information war where, you know, this uh, propaganda is sort of all that's coming at people's consciousness. And, you know, it, 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 there's so much deflection and I feel projection in the U.S. when it talks about um, there, there not being a so-called free press in other countries or issues of democracy or human rights. In truth, The U.S. government cares nothing about these things. It's perfectly willing to throw all of that in the bin as long as they can have the short term advantage of maintaining this unipolar world, this world under U.S. hegemony. And if humanity itself is pushed into oblivion as a result, then from the U.S. government's perspective, the attitude is so be it. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. And, you know, obviously there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, but I mean, uh, as you say, not only are they willing to sacrifice the Ukrainians or the Afghanis in this chess game, they're willing to sacrifice us, right, regular Americans. We spend about a trillion dollars a year on war, right, on wars that have not advanced our national security interests, not in the sense of protecting us people. Um, meanwhile, 
the infrastructure of the U.S. has been allowed to collapse. You have cities now uh, with huge numbers of homelessness. You have people without health care. You know, in, in, in a recent U.N. report, it reported that places like uh, in West Virginia and Alabama have no sewage or running water. You know, so they've, they've sacrificed even us and our well-being to continue pouring monies into these, you know, forever wars. In fact, the estimate has been that uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the U.S. has spent $13 trillion on these wars. I mean, an incredible amount of money. Could you imagine if that money was spent here on our infrastructure, on education, on health care, on feeding people? housing people. I mean, we'd have, a, you know, a, a paradise, right? Instead, we have a collapsing society and uh, the rulers don't care. Definitely. And I mean, I just want to reiterate what you mentioned a moment ago um, about the, the issues in uh, uh, the U.S. South. I mean, a few years ago, people may remember there was a, a U.N. Uh, rapporteur that went into the U.S. South and uh, uh, sort of as an investigation into uh, uh, poverty in the United States. And I mean, you know, as it happens, you know, both sides of my family are actually from South Alabama. And so when you talk about just an incredible uh, poverty, you know, this this quote unquote uh, third world kind of poverty uh, that we're describing or that we think that we only see in, uh, you know, developing countries is something that we see, like you say, in states in the U.S., the wealthiest nation in the history of nations, like Alabama, like West Virginia, and all these things. And I mean, you know, I think there's a serious issues with uh, poverty in terms of, you know, Puerto Rico as well, which is a colony of the United States. You know what I mean? And so that leads me to my next question, really, Dan, and that's about the blowback of war and endless investment in war on uh, the people of the United States and uh, people all across the globe. I mean, we started our conversation talking about the Mujahideen. I mean, those groups uh, uh, that the U.S. was supporting during that time. I mean, this is what gave rise to Osama bin Laden and uh, a number uh, of different things that ultimately um, led in terms of U.S. foreign policy to the terrorist attack on September 11th, something that changed this country forever. You know what I mean? And so these connections, though, again, are not really made to the American people. We still think that, you know, the September 11th attacks happened because some angry Muslims hate our freedom. And that's just kind of what we've been going on all this time. And there was such understandable uh, shock and grief from the devastation of the attack itself that that narrative, I think, hasn't even really uh, been challenged, at least not in the mainstream. And what I'm really saying, Dan, is that, you know, the people of the United States seem to think that, you know, war and the impacts of it is something that only happens to other people. And it's true that, you know, no one is dropping bombs on the on the United States or anything like that. So I'm not trying to say it's it's one in the same. But when we talk about blowback in a number of ways, um, it, it's just clear that war itself is sort of a scourge upon humanity and it affects us in the U.S., uh, whether or not we're uh, cognizant of it. No, I mean, that's absolutely true. Of course, this has been recognized that it's a scourge of humanity since World War II and the Nuremberg trials. And the UN and UN Charter were created explicitly for the purposes of trying to rid the world 
of the scourge of war. But, you know, no sooner was that agreed to that the U.S. began its Cold War wars beginning in Korea, it really in 1948, officially in 1950, but really in 1948, it began its operations there and, of course, went on to Vietnam and Central America. You know, we can just count uh, the number of wars the U.S. has been participating in um, since that time. And as you say, the blowback has been immense when, again, you specifically look at the war in Afghanistan, the support of the Mujahideen and, and, and Osama bin Laden. As you say, it came back to haunt us in the 9-11 attack, which, of course, then resulted in the so-called war on terror, which began the U.S.'s wars in the Middle East, which have cost us uh, alone in those countries $6 trillion dollars. And so on and on. And then the U.S., you know, attacks Iraq, overthrows the government there, and then says, oh, because we did that, of course, naturally now Iran is stronger because the majority Shiite government in uh, Iraq now supports Iran. So now we have to engage in wars in the Middle East to counter Iran and so on and so on. So every war leads to effects that lead uh, inexorably to another war. And again, that's just fine for some, you know, members of the U.S. ruling class, particularly the defense industry, which makes billions and billions of dollars on its war. So they're more than happy to engage in a war that just results in another war. But again, who loses? I mean, the people, the people who are victimized directly by the war, the American people who continue to be fleeced, for these wars, and, and, and meanwhile, monies uh, are taken from, uh, you know, our social safety nets and from education, etc. Um, so it's been a disaster. It continues to be a disaster. And the sad thing is there's almost no one in Washington who's there to say no, right? There's very few Congress people who speak out against this. And the American people, I think, are just deflated. You know, they they went out in record numbers to try to stop the war in Iraq in 2002, 2003. They weren't able to do it. It went went forward anyway. And I think there's this feeling of powerlessness that that, you know, you know, the, the polls show the American people don't want these wars. Uh, but I think they feel powerless to stop them. And, and that that that's the tragedy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I mean, for me, I think that um, the only thing that can really remedy this uh, this imperialist drive for <laughs> total destruction, I'm not sure what else to call it, but the only thing that can really address it, since we know that we can't count on elected officials, is, you know, an organized, militant, focused and principled uh, uh, anti-imperialist movement. I think we really need to grow that, especially here in the United States, as a way to finally not only settle uh, uh, these bloody conflicts, but to ensure that the people of the U.S. and the people of the world have access to the basic things that we need that we're robbed of because of the overinvestment in war and destruction. Well, we thank you so much, Dan, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back 
to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about class, race, and gentrification in D.C. and across the country. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Anthony Lorenzo Green, an advisory neighborhood commissioner, uh, 7C04, representing the Deanwood community in Washington, D.C. Anthony, thanks so much for joining us. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, How is everybody doing? Doing well, uh, doing well. And I'm glad we could have you on today because there was this piece that uh, was published in Politico recently that I think a lot of people around D.C., where, of course, uh, we're all based, has sort of been uh, uh, having a look at. And it's uh, uh, an article titled Washington was an icon of black political power. Then came gentrification. And so the piece sort of uh, uh, gives a historical view of Washington, D.C., and kind of its uh, a sort of broader meaning to black America, of course, including the uh, uh, mayoral run of uh, Marion Barry, who's considered the, the mayor for life here in D.C., someone who's yeah. still well-loved by uh, uh, D.C.'s still. black residents. Oh, yeah, and, and probably always will be. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, it, it made an interesting note, though, because, of course, D.C. historically has been known as a chocolate city for being uh, having an overwhelming a black population. But the piece notes that between uh, the year 2000 and the year 2020, and this is according to the U.S. uh, Census, um, the black population in D.C. dropped from 59 percent to 41 percent. And this uh, is happening all at the same time uh, as D.C. sees some of the highest rates of displacement in all of the U.S. And we're seeing uh, a sort of similar trends in other cities known for uh, uh, their black uh, populations as, you know, Philadelphia, Chicago, Detroit and so on. And, you know, uh, Lorenzo, you're a native of D.C. and someone who you know is active in a lot of uh, grassroots communities struggles and, you know, uh, uh, gentrification, displacement or what's, you know, sometimes called, quote, development um, in D.C. has uh, made a situation to where, you know, some of the last strongholds of, you know, D.C.'s black working class are seem to be mostly found um, in uh, southeast D.C. or what, you know, uh, folks refer to far locally north. as the, the other side of the river. And of course, in Deanwood, right. uh, where you are and Which things is in like this. Far northeast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like. We're, we're the last frontier, you know, and that's something that you will hear constantly repeated over here. I was just walking Sheriff Road this past weekend, passing all flyers and stopped at the barbershop. And that was the main topic, how our neighborhood was the last frontier. And, you know, and the flyers I was passing out was about, oh, we're about to have road improvements to Sheriff Road. Finally, took us, I don't know how many years. And you know, the first thing people said, oh, why are they doing it now? Is it because of who live here now? You know, and, and just... Rolled off the tongue like it was, you know, clean water. It, it's just something that we know we've always been told about. Uh, growing up in D.C., when I was a child, that was the first thing that my grandparents told me about was the plan. And that's what a lot of our elders told us about, what the plan was. Meaning, you know, when you get older, you're going to have to fight for this city. They're trying to take this city away from you. bits in pieces. And that's what we saw throughout our lifetime. Even the way that uh, former Mayor Marion Berry was treated. 
uh, in his last years in office as a mayor. You know, they really stripped him down and did not want to give him the ability to help his people. Uh, even when he came back from something that uh, many thought would have took him out, but it didn't. And many people didn't like the fact that his city stood beside him when he came back. But that's how this is our city. That was our mayor. Uh, and we have the right and the choice to direct what our future looks like. And throughout my lifetime, it's been a war about what my future will look like. Uh, and I've always believed that my future will be very dim in this city if we continue on this trajectory. I'm not trying to. I don't want to leave. I'm doing everything possible to make sure that our property stays in our family, make sure that my friends can at least find somewhere affordable anywhere. Because even the housing that's being built and being classified as affordable housing, affordable for who? Ain't affordable for me. Uh, and it doesn't help me to see the former mayor, Anthony Williams, who I guess I, has regrets about the policies that he initiated. And I want your viewers to know that he was the mayor right after Mary. You know, right after they stripped Mary Berry down, they kind of forced him out of office. Anthony Williams took over as what they call the bean counter. And he implemented and pushed through this plan to gentrify the rest of our city. And it was a success. But now he has regrets. But his regrets means nothing because he's still doing that work through his leadership at Federal City Council. So, you know, there are a lot of people talking, <laughs> but their actions are saying, they want to keep this status quo going because they're making so much money off us. Yeah, I mean, I, I I remember my folks telling me about the plan. I've lived in this city since I was six, so I might as well be from here. Um, <laughs> you know, <Okay>. I lived <laughs> in Southeast D.C. For, for most of that time, with the exception of maybe, I think, three years. So I live in Southeast D.C. now, so I'm right in the outpost with you. Um, and And, you know, I'm glad you brought up Anthony Williams because... I remember that people were complaining about the implementation of the control board, right? And how the district wasn't allowed to control its own finances because politicians had such a problem with Marion Barry and they, and they wanted to use the excuse of, you know, the, the legal problems and, and his substance abuse issues. But listen politicians on Capitol Hill and in other cities have done far worse and yeah. have not had their city budgets taken over by Congress. So Anthony Williams comes into office having uh, been appointed the CFO after the city's budget is being under control of of Congress. So, I mean, what do you see his role as being in in between those two realities, like Congress is controlling the city's money. Williams right. comes in. I just kind of feel like he had to placate those folks to 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 let them loose the reins to give him the control to do what he ultimately did. And a lot of people uh, and I like the uh, I think it was a group of ward seven residents that drafted Anthony Williams. So. Uh, there are folks that really had a lot of hope back then that he would be a figure that would be able to navigate those wars because we were coming out of the control board era. You know, they wanted someone that, okay, Congress can trust, but we also wanted someone that would trust us, right? So it's sort of like we're trying to walk this 
this two lane road and trying to get to the other side. And, you know, and we're hoping that the leadership that we had in place would, you know, would be able to carry us through. And arguably, you could say, okay, he, he did the best he could in the situation that he was in. But I can only judge you by your actions moving forward, right? Because I can see you said, okay, that's the situation I was in, but you're still continuing that work. You, you never stopped. <laughs> you know, the federal city council, that's not the district council, right? That's, that's a group of developers. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> you never stopped that work. And it continued under the leadership of Adrian Chinti. You know, and under the leadership of Mary, uh, Mariel Bowser. Uh, and some would say even under the leadership of Vince Gray, he just had a different set of friends. That he was dealing with. Uh, so there are those who say back then, and we understand the context during that period, uh, especially when, you know, we went through the whole uh, school board takeover. Uh, now we're in a situation where half the kids in the District of Columbia are in charter schools, while the other half is in public schools, and we're having this constant battle over our kids and which uh, sector they're going to be in and why are these charters opening up in our communities, pushing out our neighborhood schools. It's all connected. It's all connected. And it still continues to this very day. Uh, but what we want to see is actually newer generation who want to push the ball forward and actually want to cater to people who've been here the longest, never left here, even those who want to come back here there should be policies to protect that. That should be trying to make sure that we are still Chocolate City, the Black Mecca, so to speak. Everybody wants to wants to bring that uh, the identity back because it's not what it is today. It's definitely not what it is today. <laughs> uh, but I, I do want my culture back in my city. You know, and I do want our city to be a shining light throughout this nation. That, that, look at those Black people right there. They are not playing. You know, but we're in this constant battle for uh, who we are. I always feel like we're trying to get control of us, the working class. Even this mayoral race is kind of uh, giving highlights to that. Uh, which sector of the city is going to take uh, Which group is going to put their balls behind Robert White, Treyon White, or Mario Bowser? Uh, but this is our constant battle. Yeah, and, you know, a couple of times um, in our conversation here, uh, Lorenzo, you and Jackie both made reference to the plan. Now, I was hoping you could kind of explain that for our listeners and how you see it connected to what's happening in D.C. right now. Well, it's all about uh, development and trying to replace uh, a certain population that you may not feel is uh, bringing the tax revenue to your coffers, right? And that's usually black and poor people in this city. So there was always this long-standing plan that, okay, white people in this country were trying to take the nation's capital back from black people after the mass migration to this city. You know, my family migrated to this city uh, 60s and 70s uh, from Virginia. So it's like we have a lot of people that came up here from during a certain period uh, and we were part of the black, uh, I like to say the black revolution uh, that took place here because there's a lot of people who were educated, a lot of organizing that took place here that was really setting the standard for a lot of people in this country on what they need to do to try to build some power for themselves in a system that would never allow us to get ahead. Uh, but that was always the plan to try to push us out of the city and not just push us out, but strategically, you know, take our properties, even if it means that you owe $40 on your taxes. All of a sudden, there's a government agency that allowed your house to be taken because you owe $40 on your taxes. Uh, that should have never happened. You have so many LLCs that have been flipping properties in our city 
from longtime homeowners, some homeowners who were trapped in reverse mortgages and couldn't get out, you know, but they wanted to keep their properties in their families. Uh, we had a lot of folks who came into the city and were able to get property for a dollar, right? While so many of us have been begging, begging this administration for the last two terms, put money on the table so that Black families can keep their homes and we can be able to buy in this unaffordable city. You know, where all we get is election year, Hail Marys. Like, oh, look what I'm doing right now. It's this moment. That's been the, the, the cycle that we sort of been stuck in. And that's why you see in the political from 2020, uh, the displacement of so many black families. Public housing, another prime example. Public housing has been destroyed in this city, strategically destroyed in this city. And there are still some that's standing right now, but they won't be lasting long. Mm. That is a sign of how much the pain runs deep here because there are families that are really hurting right now they're struggling they don't know if they're going to be able to stay um but it's a struggle trying to tell people that you know we can change this and it really starts with who we're trusting the leadership that we're putting in place and the type of system that we're allowed to be built here we can't keep complaining about violence in our streets if we're not focused on how we're not investing in our children, our black and brown babies in our community, not investing in a community so that we can actually invest in our own, whether we're talking about community uh, land trusts or grocery co-ops. These are things that are collective uh, initiatives that we can do together as a community, but we're blocked because it doesn't benefit the free market principles in this country. Definitely, definitely a lot there. We'll have to have you back sometime soon to talk more about this, Lorenzo. But we're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garoppa, the editor of techforthepeople.org and the co-host of the Reboot Podcast. Chris. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be back. Thank you. Absolutely. And Chris, following the recent deadly shooting on the New York subway in Brooklyn, um, New York City is considering using technology that is designed for uh, detecting weapons. And I feel like I have to note and and, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in the original reporting, of, you know, the shooting, it was being said that, you know, the, the surveillance cameras weren't working and all these sorts of things. And so, I mean, I feel like the the even the most basic level of tech sort of uh, failed in its its mission there. But I was hoping you could tell us more about this weapon detecting technology and how you see it playing out. Yeah, I mean, th- this, the entire situation, of course, was tragic. And I knew immediately when it happened, like when all of these types of tragedies happen, that it was going to be used to enhance security theater. 
Um, I mean, I mean, look, you know, yesterday they announced, right, that you have you can you don't have to wear a mask, right, on a, on airplanes, uh, but you still have to take your shoes off to get to get on a plane, right? Unless you're, you know, uh, too young or too old. That's what we call security theater. It's not actually making us any safer, um, but it's actually making a whole lot of money for private companies, and it lets politicians. And police chiefs uh, say that they're doing things. So what the mayor of New York City wants to do here is install metal detectors in what appears to be only some subway stations. Not all, or at least it wouldn't start with all of them. There would be a rollout across the board. Now, this is a police department that has a, a military... It's a military-style police department, really, and they have a budget that's larger than the entire military of North Korea, like almost by three times, right? This is a $10 billion budget that the NYPD has. Now, what have they been doing with that budget? They've been building more surveillance tools. They've been hiring more officers. And, of course, none of that prevented what happened in Brooklyn last week. Um, So first the question is, will a metal detector solve this problem. Uh, I mean, no, it it won't. People will find ways around it. And the second question is, what problems will these types of metal detectors create? What they're looking at is not the standard, you know, what you think about maybe when you walk into a courthouse or something like that. You take everything out of your pockets and, you know, you walk through the thing and it goes off because you forgot your earrings and they, you know, they wave a wand at you. That's not what we're really talking about here. This is... uh, actually a little more evolved than even the stuff that you go through uh, at an airport with the TSA. Um, Effectively, you do walk through a machine and it uses, they say it's sensors and artificial intelligence to detect guns, knives, weapons uh, as people go through. So you don't have to unload your pockets. You can just kind of walk through. Uh, There are still security people manning all of these, um, you know, all of these stations. So extremely expensive equipment, first of all. And I mean, if your listeners have ever been to New York, been on the subway, they already know how hectic so many of those stations are. The, you know, you're trying to run to get to your train, you're trying to find your Metro card to swipe it or the money to buy one. Um, no matter how good this technology is, even if it were completely accurate, uh, it would still be slowing things down in a city that honestly does not want to be slowed down when people are trying to get to work or get home or get to do something. Um, but also, the technology isn't going to be as accurate uh, when you have a subway system that you know millions and millions of people ride every day. The other issue is going to be one of where are they implementing these? Because so far, the updates that we have seen are that it is not going to be on, for example, the uh, Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, you know, a wealthy neighborhood. It's going to be in places like the Bronx and Brooklyn uh, in primarily black and brown neighborhoods and in poor neighborhoods. So. You know, rolling these out on a, a trial basis even, um, and you know they have not announced exactly which vendor they're going with. They have not announced where exactly this would be going. It, it really seems it's, it's the wrong response, frankly, to a, a tragic incident like what happened last week. Yeah, definitely the wrong response, which is typical of the United States government and the police departments. Just just the fact, Chris, that NYPD has a budget for its uh, police department as big as it is. The fact that they are using this uh, tragedy to 
excuse or, or to justify spending even more money on more technology that is going to racially profile more people. Um, it's just quite typical of the way the United States government and even down to the state and local levels responds to problems, not giving people what they need, not meeting people's needs to eliminate the possibility of the kinds of things happening uh, that did uh, recently in New York. But but when these things happen, you know, create condition, conditions that cause these things to happen and then pour more money into criminalizing people. And and I, I, I'm hoping, uh, Chris, that there is a lot of uh, a lot of alarms being raised about this evolved system and this idea in New York. There are, and I think some of the, the leading opposition is coming from the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, uh, STOP. Uh, they're a fantastic civil liberties group. Uh, their uh, executive director, Albert Fox Kahn, has actually commented on a number uh, of these developments and stories that I've been reading uh, over the past week or so, um, you know, in fact, saying, you know, many of the same things that we're talking about here, that this is going to, you know, this is going to be a disaster, uh, not just in terms of, you know, obviously slowing down access to the subways, which is a problem for everyone in a in a city and in a subway system as vast, but also as kind of messy, I, I think is the best word as somebody who goes to New York, you know, somewhat regularly, it's messy. You never know what platform you're supposed to be on. This is going to add more confusion, but it's also going to add more of an opportunity for police harassment if these systems, you know, detect the wrong, you know, or incorrectly detect uh, an item. One of the examples that they give is that uh, these screening towers could identify, for example, a sun and eyeglasses case as a weapon. And you know that the police or the operators who are standing next to these machines are going to be profiling who to actually stop and who not to, because that's how the NYPD does it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, some broader context for this issue, I think, is the fact that, you know, the mayor of um, New York City, Eric Adams, is himself a former cop and um, uh, uh, back in February uh, proposed a ninety eight billion dollar budget with no cuts for the NYPD, although um, it does call for cuts across the board for most of the city's agencies. And so no big shocker there. Um, Another thing I wanted to uh, touch on today, Chris, was. Um, this issue of GitHub uh, suspending accounts of uh, Russian developers who work at companies that are under sanctions. And I wanted to discuss this because, I mean, it feels like a ripple effect for the war in Ukraine uh, sort of creeping into the tech world here. Yeah, this really this story really shows us how the sanctions that the U.S. and NATO allies have been putting on Russia are really impacting just everyday people who have absolutely nothing to do with the war. Um, GitHub is a uh, a website, a software platform. It's owned now by Microsoft as of recently, where uh, developers upload their projects and their source code. And in many cases, anyone is free to go and look at it, download it, use it, modify it, submit fixes or, or ideas back to it. It's, a, it's really a center of the open source world where people share their projects and code just for, you know, for, for everyone to be able to use. I mean, I'm, I'm on this site on a daily basis. I'm sure if your listeners are in tech, they, 
they are also using this site regularly. Um, well, what's happening is that uh, GitHub is disabling the accounts of particularly Russian developers who have been using accounts tied to Russian companies. In many cases, you know, GitHub is free. Uh, they also offer some paid services. So if a company has been paying for services, GitHub now cannot accept the money for that uh, because of the sanctions and all of the uh, financial restrictions that have been put in place by the U.S. government. And so they're shutting off the, the access in the accounts. And in some cases, it looks like it's people who aren't even working for those companies um, who are you know, under the sanctions anymore just because they have a history or they've contributed to a project by that company. So really, it's, you know, it's a bigger issue than GitHub. GitHub, of course, is you know, doing what it legally has to do, unfortunately. Um, but it's really showing that you know, these companies and these, you know, that are implementing these sanctions that are being put in place by the U.S. government are really you know, having this, this drastic impact on the, potentially the livelihoods of people all across the world, in fact. If you've been doing business with people in Russia, if you live elsewhere and are working for a Russian-based company, <clears throat> which isn't out of the question, it's a huge country. So there's, you know, there's so many you know, effects that I think people aren't thinking of. They think that these sanctions are just, oh, they're going to hit Putin or they're going to you know, hit the highest levels of the government or just the military. But then you've got people, uh, you know, like uh, one of the people who, who's quoted in this article, you know, Vadim Yanitsky, who's just a developer uh, and can't access now his, his livelihood, his code. And, yeah, what kind of recourse do uh, developers uh, like the person mentioned in the article have uh, against GitHub, who said, the company said in a blog post they published last March, that in parallel with our efforts to make sure GitHub is available to developers in all countries, we're continuing to ensure free open source services are available to all, including developers in Russia. So what do the developers in Russia or who have any connection with sanctioned countries, what recourse do they have against GitHub since they did publicly declare that they would, you know, provide uh, services, uh, their services to all developers in all countries? Yeah, there's there's this a way to appeal your suspension, uh, but the onus is on you uh, as the individual to say that you are not or should not be penalized under U.S. Export Administration regulations, the EAR, the E-A-R, um, and you have to go through uh, and do all of this work uh, in order to prove that you are not, you know, related to, like, the Russian government and sanctioned uh, organizations, uh, not just in Russia, but also Iran, Syria, Crimea, other areas, too, of the world. Um, and again, this all goes back to, you know, just the, the overwhelming sanctions and the point of sanctions, right? The point of sanctions are war. They are to make people upset with their government. Uh, not to say that people don't have reason to be upset with their government already, but to, you know, to push people against their own government. That's really what these sanctions are. So you have to go through this kind of Byzantine sort of process to, to appeal and provide uh, proof and documents that, you know, no one really wants to be doing that. You know, you're up against really a team of lawyers at, uh, between GitHub and its parent Microsoft when you're trying to do this. 
Yeah. And one last thing I want to talk about today, Chris, I was looking at um, this site, consumerreports.org, and they published a piece about how video doorbells, something that we've uh, talked about a good bit here on Tech for the People, how it also records uh, audio. And according to this piece by uh, Yale Grower, can pick up conversations from 20 to 25 feet away. I mean, uh, from where you're standing, I mean, what are the sort of you know audio recording capabilities of, of some of this tech? Yeah, I mean, so they what they did at uh, Consumer Reports is they went and they tested a number of these cameras. And uh, Yale Grower does some really fantastic work. I actually recommend people follow her. Um, she's uh, done some really fantastic research on a lot of these types of devices and, and other home you know equipment. Um, and basically, yeah, I mean, if there's a ring doorbell or another one of those types of doorbells, it can hear you. Uh, it can record audio. And then remember, you know, if you're standing near one, and we're talking by near 15, 20, maybe even 30 feet, which in many places means you are on the sidewalk in front of one of these uh, buildings that has one. Um, you know, we're not talking, you know, here necessarily about living out in the suburbs where you've got, you know, plenty of space between your door and a front yard. I mean, I'm, I'm looking out a window now. I see 15 feet away is the sidewalk. So if I had one of these on my door, which I absolutely do not. I could, in theory, listen to conversations of people who were walking by. What gets more complicated then is what if it's an apartment building, right, that you live in and one of your neighbors has installed one of these Mm. and they decide to be watching it all the time. Then they can hear your phone conversations, the conversations you're having with other people as you're walking in and out of the building. So the idea, the... The idea here is that we need to be cautious and aware, both when we're installing these, really consider, do I need to be listening to the audio of my neighbors, of strangers going down the street, and also when we're around them? You know, what am I saying? What am I saying that in a 15-second recorded clip uh, could be, you know, taken out of context, could be, you know, just used against me in any way, just, you know... because that stuff can go right to the police if the owner decides to send it. And if the police, are, we know, have been very pushy about requesting access to this material. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, as always, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, April 19th, 2022. And in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Libra, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. All our allies and, and that, all of y'all people, <laughs> allies, accomplices, comrades. 
everybody can still reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. by calling us at 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also hit listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. You can listen live on SputnikNews.com and catch our episodes on that site by uh, going to buy underscore any underscore means. And you can check us out on Sputnik.Mave.Digital. That's Sputnik.Mave.Digital. And we are streaming live right now on Rumble, that's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. But remember, folks, you can call us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. When uh, uh, Jackie, while we're waiting to get our uh, guest on the line here, I was actually hoping we could chat some about um, your recent trip to Venezuela. Uh, we talked about it a little bit uh, uh, here on the show, but but I'm actually really curious about your experience there uh, uh, while there was an uh, anti-fascist uh, uh, conference that was happening in Venezuela. You know, what'd you see? What were you able to do? I mean, what was that experience like for you just being in Venezuela? I mean, it was, you know, it's weird because every time I go out of the country, ever since I've been a committed anti-imperialist and I have traveled out of this country, I've noted that that there is a, a, a noticeable feeling, a noticeable difference in, I always, almost want to say my physiology. Like I literally feel differently when I'm not inside the beating heart of imperialism. It really does feel different. And it wasn't any different in Venezuela. I mean, <laughs> It, it is it is disconcerting to go to a major city uh, that's obviously, you know, densely populated and Caracas is a densely populated city and see no homeless people. That that is something that we don't have an experience with here in Washington, D.C. That's something that I think we don't experience in most major cities in this country, the richest country this planet has probably ever seen. Uh, and and allegedly the most powerful country uh, this planet has ever seen. But somehow, you know, this plucky little country, Venezuela, that folks in this country say is, you know, uh, uh, a failed state and is run by uh, a socialist dictators. Well, they don't have homeless people in Caracas because the Maduro government just completed a four million housing unit project. So you build four, four million units of housing, then, then people aren't homeless. And, and that was like the first thing, honestly, as we were driving from the airport to the hotel in Caracas that really struck me. I'm, I'm so used to seeing homeless people that I was, I was a little bit taken aback that I was in a major city and I didn't see any homeless. And, and I think that speaks more to the sick and twisted nature of this country and what we've become accustomed to and more, more than anything else. And, and so that really just made me just deep, just deepened my commitment to this anti-imperialist struggle 
Um, but but the, the first thing I think I noticed when I went to Venezuela was before we even got into the airport was their COVID protocols are mad ridiculous. I mean, they are serious about you. They you get sprayed with a disinfectant thing. Well, actually, they they walk you through. It's a little booth and it's a little disinfectant thing, and you have to walk through it and you have to turn around and and if you're not in there long enough, they tell you to get back in there. <laughs> And then so so you get disinfected and this is before you even like leave the the main terminal, like when you get off your flight, then you have to go to uh, this. uh, It's like a long line of of medical professionals who are decked out in protective gear who, yes, they have your covid uh, vaccination uh, information because you have to be uh, uh, you have to be tested to travel. You have to test negative, but they, they give you another COVID test anyway before you leave the airport. Wow. And then we get to the, to the hotel and then they're outside of the hotel. They're spraying you with more. And I, I mean, I, I guess some people in this country would think, oh my God, that's such an inconvenience. But this is a virus that has killed a million people in this country. What well, could be more inconvenient than that? I like can't see anything. Like, yeah, I, I don't see anything more inconvenient than sickness and death. So I was just like, okay, just disinfect me as much as you need. Well, well here's my question, Jackie. I mean, how many people did you see um, protesting that their freedom was being infringed upon because they had to be disinfected and tested? Did you see a lot of that? I didn't see any of that. I was I was <laughs> waiting for it. And, and I was just, you know, we in, in the course of the time we were there, we had to get tested multiple times. Uh, because we did have a a press conference with uh, President Maduro, which I got to tell you, I'm sorry, dude. I just I'm not impressed with politicians because I've you know been a lob uh, uh, been a receptionist in a lobbying firm and worked at a lobbying firm for five years, and I've met folks, and they all have this air of pretension about about them. I, very few have not have not come across that way to me. But Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, former bus driver, was just the most unassuming kind of guy. He was just an unassuming guy who just happens to be president of the country. So, you know, you can't like just roll up on him and, and you know, because he's definitely got security there. But, you know, he's, he, he, we're in the room when he's doing the uh, uh, the press conference. He's talking about the um the April 11th commemoration. He's thanking us for being there. Uh, they had selected certain people to speak. And uh, the mayor of um, Recolato, I think it, I think is the name of the, the town in uh, Bolivia, I believe, uh, where the police have been uh, repressing violent repression. I mean, shooting people's eyes out. And we've seen this like in Israel and, and in other places. And in the middle of this, this, this journalist or, or the mayor of this town um, talking to President Maduro about how they achieved grassroots, grassroots support for a socialist platform and ultimately won. It took 16 years, you know, and he, he went through the steps, it took 16 years went from house to house, neighborhood to neighborhood. And, and this is how we built support. You know, every election, they started out with 7%. 
Next election, it was maybe 20, 10, 15%. Next election, maybe 20, 25. And then finally, they're at 70% and they win the mayorship. So Maduro just kind of interrupts the guy and he said, you know, I, I hear, I heard about, you know, what's been going on with the people there and how the police are in the military shooting out people's eyes. And I tell you what, I'm going to offer um, to send a plane to your country and, and the people who need medical support, you know, you put them on the plane and they'll come here and we'll treat them, us and the, and the Cuban doctors. And, and I'm going to make this offer to Colombia too. And he said, you know, I made this offer to the last president uh, of, of, and I think he was talking about Colombia, but we know that Ivan Duque is, yeah. you know, a right wing lunatic. So, so, I mean, this is a guy who, president of a country under vicious, vicious sanctions from the United States, constant, constant threat of more intervention. And here is a guy who used to be a bus driver, who is now the president of this country, just kind of off the cuff. You know what? I think people need help in your country. Why don't I do that? Why don't I just offer to help them? And yeah, I I recognize that he's a politician. And on some level, that was clearly a political move. But also, it was a political move that I think is born out of the solidarity that the, the, that the Bolivarian Revolution even came about in. You know what I mean? So th this is not an unusual thing for the Venezuelan government under the Bolivarian Revolution to do. This wasn't like an anomaly. That, that's why I couldn't look at it as a as a, you know, a strictly political move. Um, it was it was genuinely an, an, an extension of solidarity where there are no strings attached. And I think that was the thing. It's like when the United States does something nice, the government does something nice for another country. Right. When it provides humanitarian aid. You and I know there's always strings attached. Oh, yeah. But there's no quid pro quo here. There's just the president of a country that has defeated uh, imperialism and is still fighting against the internal right wing forces that are backed by U.S. imperialism in their country, trying to hold on to and advance their revolution, continuing to express solidarity with other people in Latin America who are doing the same thing. And, and it's it's like. As, as I was going around and talking to people and seeing things, I got the sense that these folks recognize that solidarity is the key to their survival. Mm -hmm. And it's material. It is not like this esoteric ideological, right. which I, I kind of came back feeling like we got to get our solidarity right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a fact. And, you know, I actually I saw that clip of Maduro, you know, making that promise, I believe it was to a, a, a Chilean gentleman. Right. And I'm like, Sorry, well, well yeah. here's here's Maduro um, offering, um, uh, you know, surgeries and medical care to people who had their eyes shot out while police. Meanwhile, here in the United States, uh, uh, the so-called bastion of human rights and all these sorts of things, who is, is basically proud to make himself like the, the personal piggy bank of police mm -hmm. in the United States. And <laughs> right. so a lot of differences on a lot of levels. But yeah. we are happy to be joined for the hour today by Lee Camp, a stand up comedian 
writer, activist, and author of Bullet Points and Punchlines, the most important commentary ever written on the epic American tragic comedy. You can support his work at patreon.com slash Lee Camp. Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, Lee, I wanted to talk today, I wanted to begin today by talking about the impacts of the war in Ukraine and the uh, economic sanctions on Russia and the impacts that that's having on the uh, global economy. I was looking at a piece uh, here by uh, uh, from uh, multipolarista.com. Uh, from late March that noted that back in the year 2000, roughly 70% of global foreign exchange reserves were held in U.S. dollars. And as of 2021, that has now fallen to just under 60%. And the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, notes that there's a rise in, quote, non-traditional currencies, which is an interesting uh, uh, phrase, and uh, was basically discussing a, a decline of the dominance of the dollar, which has only, I think, been exacerbated while, uh, by these Western sanctions on Russia. I think that the, the hegemony of the U.S. dollar has been uh, uh, weakened here. Um, and it, it's just sort of an interesting thing because it feels like an example of uh, how the U.S. and its warlike position, not just with Russia, but I mean, with the whole of the earth, actually does have a number of sort of a, a negative impacts, but th there's such a, a drive for the kind of short-term, quote-unquote, uh, uh, victory of pushing for war that those sorts of things don't seem to matter, and there's, you know, uh, uh, no real foresight. And uh, there, uh, this piece quotes an official with the IMF that says, um, you know, Western sanctions that were put on Russia after it, it invaded Ukraine said, quote, including restrictions on its central bank could encourage the emergence of small currency blocks based on trade between separate groups of countries, adding that fragmentation at a smaller level is certainly quite possible and so on. And but when you think about the fact that Russia is one of the largest exporters in the world of wheat and fertilizers and gas and oil. Uh, these sanctions basically have compelled uh, the trading partners of the Russian Federation to use alternative payment mechanisms to get sort of these things. And, you know, e even with these sanctions, the EU, the European Union, still gets 40 percent of its natural gas from Russia. And so I'm curious your sort of estimation of this um, whole point here, Lee, because, <laughs> I mean, it just seems clear that, you know, the U.S., excuse me, is engaging in its typical pattern of, you know, uh, uh, containment and attempting at isolation. And while I don't think that uh, the power of the dollar is going to crumble, you know, tomorrow, it, it, it kind of feels like uh, the U.S.'s war drive is having a, a, an opposite effect with perhaps some unintended consequences. Well, yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. And a lot of it was going on before the war in Ukraine. Uh there, the, the U.S., you know, the, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious that this is a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia and Russia and, and the U.S. helped push it to this point. But that has to do with a crumbling of the the U.S. hegemony on, on you know, multiple fronts. And the U.S., we, we maintain our hegemony over the globe via 
two, mainly two ways. Uh, a totally insane military, trillion dollars a year if you count the black budget, uh, 800 to 900 military bases around the world, just an insane military. And then the other half of it is the petrodollar and the central banking system that we uh, largely control. And that goes back to the Bretton Woods agreement that that the U.S. would be the the, the petrodollar would be the reserve currency uh, aligned with OPEC. And and you've been seeing some chipping away out at that. Now, what happened before uh, this the, this war in Ukraine is that we've seen multiple times when a country would step outside of the petrodollar or step outside of the U.S. Uh, controlled central banking, they would end up on the pointy end of our missiles rather quickly. Uh, it happened. One, one of the first main ones was Saddam Hussein and Iraq to uh, switch their oil payments from dollars to euro. And uh, that didn't go so well for Saddam Hussein. Uh, then, you know, killing a mil we killed a million people in Iraq basically because of that. Uh, then you've got Muammar Gaddafi in Libya talking about uh, switching to an African currency, the gold dinar, which we saw what happened to Gaddafi. Uh, Syria dropped the dollar, um, Afghanistan, uh, you know, uh, and, and multiple other examples. And basically, the U.S. is playing whack-a-mole on, on countries that are moving outside of the petrodollar. We are a waning late-stage empire, and we are trying to maintain our control. So what this war in Ukraine, this proxy war, has done is kind of forced Russia to take steps that it was already taking, I believe, but this put it on fast-forward, because this showed Russia that, and they knew these sanctions were coming, but the, it showed Russia that they cannot rely on, you know, the United States and the United States kind of vassal states to be in charge of this system. And now it is put a put a fast forward button to Russia working with China to create a financial system outside of the U.S. controlled one, the U.S. and, and EU controlled one. And that, that uh, you know, uh, I, I did a segment on this uh, on uh, my Patreon, patreon.com slash Lee Camp, which uh, quoted a lot from Ellen Brown, economist Ellen Brown. She's talked about it a lot. She has an article in Sheer Post. Uh, another economist has called this the great splitting of the global economies because this basically says, who are you with? Are you with America or are you with the Russia-China alliance? And India has signaled that it's more with the, you know, more of a natural partner with Russia. They, they've talked about switching to a, a rupee ruble trade for oil. Um, Pakistan, we saw Imran Khan said that they're more aligned with Russia. And, oh, following week, he's uh, he's voted out in a vote of no confidence that multipolarista and others have also call, called a, a U.S.-backed vote uh, to get him out. And so... You know, this continues, this ongoing fight over the, the splitting of the global economies. And, you know, Russia has talked about um, creating a new currency that would link to national currencies, but would basically be a cryptocurrency. And I don't know. We'll see where that goes. But Russia and China have also are also working on a, a, a system outside of the SWIFT system, which is the interbanking messaging system that they have now, many Russian banks have now been cut off from. So it is kind of a great splitting of, of global economies, and it's put a fast-forward button on a lot of uh, stepping outside of the U.S. control that, that Russia had been working on anyway. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think there's so much focus, Lee, on... The U.S. 
hoping, the U.S. government hoping that uh, these additional sanctions and uh, the uh, U.S. government and its allies isolating Russia, I think there was so much focus on them hoping that it would just cause the Russian economy to crumble. I think they forgot that China existed for a while. So (laughs) China, of course, comes in and and steps in and makes uh, uh, deals with Russia and all of these other countries that are uh, pulling away, slowly pulling away from from U.S. hegemony. What what position does that put China in now uh, as the Russian ruble rebounds to the surprise, I guess, of all the smart people in Washington? Um, and, you know, China is just sitting there doing what whatever it is they're doing. What are they doing, Lee? Well, it's interesting because in a way it looks like the United States is shooting itself in the foot because uh, all these sanctions on Russia have forced Russia to do something that the U.S. does not want it to do, which is create this secondary system, secondary global system for finance. But the U.S. saw the writing on the wall that uh, there was too much economic cooperation between Russia, China, and then they were working with the EU, obviously, with the Nord Stream 2. And there were other other forays into cooperation with Russia. So the U.S., in order to keep our control, has decided that we need to pick apart these alliances, which we've already destroyed the alliance, the, the economic alliances between France, Germany, and Russia. Uh, we've destroyed the Nord Stream too. So we've had some successes, I guess, in that regard. But we also think that we need to. Uh, drive a wedge between Russia and China, which is what we're trying to do with our propaganda. You know, we're trying to say to China, you have to make a choice here. You have to go against Russia, get the world community against them. But the U.S. propaganda does not own the world like it may be used to, or I don't know, like they think they do. So most of the world does not view this as just a Russia problem. You know, oh, just yesterday, Russia woke up and decided they needed to invade Ukraine. Uh, much of the world sees that this is a, you know, that that their security was being infringed on and there's a lot of nuance here and NATO is expanding when they said they wouldn't expand and the U.S. is funding and arming Nazis. And so a lot of the world sees the that 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 that's ridiculous. And I think China knows that, you know, the world has caved to American hegemony for too long and we've just had endless wars and endless bombing coming directly from the United States. So I don't think most of the world sees that as the answer anymore. I think that there's kind of a great awakening going on. The United States will never do good just to do good. Uh, It will only claim that it's doing good while bombing another country in order to uh, seek profit and power. And, you know, I I think the China-Russia alliance is, is a major player here. Yeah. And, you know, I continue to be tickled because you um, noted this uh, issue with the U.S. and India. And we talked about this uh, the other day um, on the show when uh, Joe Biden met with uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and told him that it wouldn't be in uh, India's interest to continue using Russian oil, which still is just amazing to me. And also, you know, similar to like the piece on Imran Khan, you know, uh, when uh, India made it clear that, you know, they weren't going to follow the Washington line on Ukraine. Now, all of a sudden, we see that the U.S. is is, is concerned about uh, human rights issues uh, in India. Isn't that something? You know <laughs> right. what I mean? 
And so, you know, you talk about the, the Modi government. I mean, this is like a right wing government. And I noted at the time that, you know, when when the world's largest protest was happening in India with the farmers and the government was attempting to suppress it while also uh, attacking alternative media platforms like News Click that were reporting from inside India about just that movement. Um, Washington was like A-OK, and that was all well and good. But but now they got to take a closer look at things in India. Right. And other right. And, well, and- you see you see this again and again, every time a country goes against the United States, especially on matters of dollar and central banking, uh, they suddenly the United States suddenly says, oh, I, we just remembered you're violating human rights. Or, uh, yeah, the, the the Uyghurs, there's a there's a genocide going on over there. Or uh, my one of my favorites was and I think this was under Trump. Pakistan announced that they were going to start buying oil from China in Yuan, the petrol Yuan instead of the petrodollar. And the following day or like two days later, the administration declared or ad- added Pakistan to the list of countries violating religious freedom within days of going outside of the petrodollar. And I was like, in some ways, that's actually just brutally honest. The dollar is our religion. And now Pakistan has violated <laughs> our religion. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, even if uh, even if we look at like the, the headlines that we see from the mainstream media, like, uh, you know, recently the New York Times published a piece uh, but, you know, before, you know, as Biden was getting prepared to meet with Modi and the, the, the headline is with India on the fence over Ukraine, Biden meets with Modi. I mean, I, I don't think they're on the fence just because they don't <laughs> agree with Washington. I mean, they clearly made a calculation based on their own interests, as, as I would think uh, any government would do. But I mean, it's really, you know, just incredible the extent to which you know, reality has been molded and skewed and just the incredible uh, propaganda that uh, the American people have been subject to here. I want to talk more about that on the other side of our first break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Lee Camp. And, you know, Lee, the the media, the mainstream corporate owned media in the United States has been playing, I think, a crucial role in uh, the sort of consciousness around uh, the war in Ukraine. And, and in ways and, and I maintain they've actually been even more bellicose than the White House in some ways on this war with, you know, we see some of the journalists, you know, pushing for, you know, a no-fly zone and these press briefings with Biden and things like that and asking, why aren't you doing more and why aren't you doing more? And of course, I mean, you know, we all sit here having been impacted in uh, different ways uh, by this. Uh, You know, we we recently had, you know, a hit piece on Sputnik uh, that was published by CNN. I mean, of course, Lee, you know, you had a long running uh, popular show on RT uh, uh, that was recently taken down, YouTube channels taken down. I mean, just years of people's work 
gone in an instant with, you know, uh, no recourse. I mean, this is clearly just big tech doing the whim of the state. I, I don't know what else you could call it. And I mean, again, we see um, an issue of these, you know, U.S. officials just sort of calling a thing what it actually is uh, in public. I mean, recently, uh, CIA Director William Burns, you know, admitted that there is an information war that is happening um, against uh, Russia. And this happened uh, during a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing. It was an open door hearing um, uh, back on March 10th. Um, he said, quote, in all the years I spent as a career diplomat, I saw too many instances in which we lost information wars with the Russians. In this case, I think we have had a great deal of effect in disrupting their tactics and their calculations. So this is one information war that I think Putin is losing. And uh, uh, it doesn't just end at, you know, Russia, <clears throat> excuse me. At Russian media, I mean, recently the New York Times attacked uh, Ben Norton, um, an independent journalist who uh, publishes the website multipolarista.com, which, you know, I really uh, encourage people to check out. It's a really great site. And they were talking about how Ben was publishing what they called conspiracy theories in pointing to the U.S. involvement in the Maidan coup in Ukraine in 2014, even though uh, the NYT and some of these other mainstream um, platforms, uh, you know, uh, publish some of the same information that uh, Ben did that they're now saying is uh, uh, a conspiracy theory. And I mean, we know that uh, uh, the New York Times uh, in terms of how they propagated the lie of weapons of mass destruction and all these sorts of things. But I mean, they also played up this uh, issue of, you know, the, the Havana syndrome, like, you know, the Cuban government was zapping people with microwaves or something like that, or the, the whole bounty gate uh, uh, issue and all these sorts of things. And even, you know, maybe lesser known uh, uh, issues like, you know, uh, the NYT blaming communists in Vietnam for the Gulf of Tonkin or or, you know, the good old claim that Iraqi soldiers were taking Kuwaiti babies out of incubators, you know, you know, shout out to the Naira testimonies, you know, a complete uh, a lie that, again, uh, uh, helped to spur on a war at the behest of the U.S. And it, it just seems clear, uh, Lee, on so many levels that under the guise of so-called misinformation, this imper these imperialist propaganda machines, because that's what they are. When you when you publish these pieces and write these articles and work for these platforms that are ran by billionaires and corporations, right, uh, then that is precisely what you are. These are imperialist propaganda machines. These so-called journalists are stenographers for the ruling class that are claiming that we should suppress Russian state media because it 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 uh, because of supposed misinformation. Or because of supposedly pushing war propaganda, which is what CNN uh, was claiming about Sputnik, right? Um, but uh, in truth, it, it doesn't really stop there. It's not just about Russia. It's about silencing any alternative perspective, anything that strays from the line of the U.S. government 
uh, becomes a target of attack. And I think we're even seeing people publish things about, well, why is uh, a Chinese media, you know, allowed and all these sorts of things. And so it, it's clearly going to be a slippery slope that's um, going to uh, be in place to attack any narrative that doesn't square uh, with that of Washington. And as such, it seems that real journalism uh, uh, is really under threat as there's clearly a campaign to rob the American people and the people of the West, I would argue, of the opportunity to hear different sides and make a decision for themselves, you know? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. What you have going on here is uh, two two factors. One is, like you said, this information war with Russia. And unlike the past, this is perhaps the first time where we've seen them actually admit it, where we've seen the U.S. government and our media admit that they're making things up, essentially, uh, and, and acting like they are legit stories in Ukraine. Um, I did a segment on this as well, how they even NBC News uh, had a report, an online article about it and about how in a break from the past, meaning for the first time, at least in, 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 in their admission, uh, for the first time, the Biden administration was acting like intelligence was, you know, rock solid when it was far from rock solid. And in some cases, uh, they they said they, quote, just go by a vibe they feel. So they feel a vibe coming from Ukraine and they then turn that into rock solid intelligence for a story for our mainstream media, which, like you say, are stenographers for the State Department to then say is rock solid. So it's just straight up lies. And even NBC News has admitted this because they're they reported on what the Biden administration was saying. Uh, so that is at least to some degree a break from the past, at least while it's happening later, you'll have admissions like, oh, maybe that maybe that WMD Intel was not uh, so strong after all. But this may be the first time we've seen it happening live as they're doing it. They're saying we're making stuff up and we're considering it actual news. So you have that going on, that info war with Russia. And then on the other side of things, it is an ongoing pursuit to stop and end indie journalists, uh, those who are outside of the mainstream, who are not accountable to the government themselves. The New York Times has said themselves, has admitted that they, at times, meaning when it's uh, prevalent, when it's important, uh, have at times gone to the U.S. government for approval on stories because they want the national security state to be okay with their reporting. Now, that is They've admitted that, and that is the polar opposite of what adversarial journalism should be. That is the polar opposite of the reason we supposedly have freedom of press, which, of course, we don't have. Uh, when a comedian like myself can be can have their TV show shut down and all of their uh, eight years of videos deleted on YouTube, that's not freedom of press. So we don't have that, but we claim we do. We have a big motto. We have it printed on the flag. It says freedom of press. Uh, so we don't have that, but they, we like to pretend we do. And here you have the New York Times saying that they go to the government for approval on stories that involve the national security state. And they want to crush and stop anybody who is an in, independent journalist who is outside of that control, outside of these uh, corporate outlets that have been captured by the state. I mean, really, it's it's vice versa. The, the corporations have captured our state. So corporate America is what rules America. So you basically have the New York Times intertwined with the American corporate state. That is one, one thing. Uh, it is one entity. 
And they, like you said, they did a hit piece on Ben Norton uh, several years ago. They did a attack full full page attack article on me, uh, which ultimately they had to print multiple redactions uh, or sorry retractions because uh, they've been proven false on uh, multiple fronts on a simple article about a comedian. Um, but th- you know, basically, they do one of the whenever someone gets a, a little too powerful in the indie journalist world, they do one or two of these articles. I also had one against me uh, by NPR, and the, what that does is it serves a purpose. They don't want to do a lot of them because then they might drive traffic to that person. They just do one, and the purpose of it is so that it is now the top Google search for anyone looking for Ben Norton or multipolarisa. It is now the top Wikipedia source that can be pointed to for, for the truth of reality. That is Wikipedia, which, you know, the U S doesn't just own these massive tech platforms like Twitter and YouTube and Google and everything. They also essentially own Wikipedia. So they own the, the internet's history of the world. And that is useful because if Wikipedia has this policy that basically legit sources are New York Times, CNN, Fox News, etc. Non-legit sources are me, myself, talking about myself. So if I say I was born in 1980 and uh, New York Times says I was born in 1983, well, then according to Wikipedia, 1983 is the reality because I don't count as a legit source on myself. So, the, you know, this serves multiple purposes to attack Ben and attack multipolarista to try and harm them going forward. And it's a large scale attack on independent journalists. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is when you and I, and I couldn't help but chuckle, Lee, when you, you know, pointed out absolutely correctly that corporations run the state. Corporations run this government. So then doesn't it make sense that the coverage of this proxy war that the U.S. EU and NATO started in Ukraine against Russia. Doesn't it make sense now that the coverage of this war looks like a splashy PR campaign commercial for a bad uh, action movie? Because that's how it looks to me, because none of what they're saying is actually true. These things are not actually happening. They, they uh, very frequently there's no, you know, confirmation. As a matter of fact, independent journalists come back and say, We've confirmed the ex- exact opposite of what corporate media has said. And then the response from corporate media is, oh, well, we we weren't able to independently verify this thing that we said definitely happened yesterday. And I, I just just think that this is very typical of what a PR campaign is. That's how it looks to me, Lee. And I'm wondering how it looks to you other than, you know typical state, you know, typical U.S. government lies, but it's particularly slick this time around, I think. Yeah, it's it's particularly, you know, atrocious and well-crafted, and they're, they're being particularly vicious against those of us who are outside of the Overton window, the acceptable, allowable thought on corporate media. Um, you know, I mean, within, I mean, what was the, what was the time span? Within days, of uh, Russia's invasion, you had RT America shut down, all my old videos, and anyone else at RT America, all those deleted. You had my podcast and your and your uh, yours as well deleted off Spotify. This is all a matter of days, a coordinated attack to shut down any opposing voices, so that that slick PR campaign that you're talking about was able to uh, go forward more unfettered and unquestioned. Um, it it really. You know, when you don't have the truth on your side, you kind of need more of that uh, that that 
media hegemony and you need more of that slick look and uh, more of that kind of garbage because you can't actually speak with the truth. You can't have a legit discussion about these things or else your the the fake side unravels fairly quickly uh, with a lot of these stories that they've kind of made up, you know, the, the whatever it was called, the, the Snake Island story and the, the hospital bombing the hospital story, even though they unravel and we find the truth is near opposite what we've been told. They don't un- they, they serve their purpose for U.S. propaganda because, you know, the New York Times will do uh, and all of our media will do several front page stories. CNN will run with it for 24 hours and then there'll be a little thing five days later where they go, oh, the, maybe the reality, you know, on page D12, the uh, the reality might be a little different than we said. And no one ever sees that article and no one ever cares and they move on. And it, it really serves its purpose to put out these these false stories um, as we saw with, you know, if you want to go back before Ukraine, as we saw with like Bounty Gate, okay, the, the, which completely unraveled the idea that Russia was paying Taliban bounties to kill U.S. troops. And it was plastered all over CNN and everything for two days. And then we saw it fade away. And within a week, it was completely debunked. It was completely false. But what it served was days before that, uh, Trump had called for troops to leave Afghanistan. And then after Bounty Gate came out, he couldn't do it anymore. Uh, and so the troops didn't leave Afghanistan. So it served, these things serve their purpose, even when they're thoroughly debunked. But, you know, my belief is that if you keep showing how fake these stories are and how terrible and false the New York Times is, eventually at least a certain percentage of Americans are going to wake up and think, you know, I don't know if I can trust these outlets anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I was also just thinking while you were uh, giving your comment there, Lee, about uh, how again, about how like big tech sort of, you know, weighs in here, you know, to be in league uh, with the state. And of course, for a while now, there have been these, you know, state affiliated media sort of tags. It's almost like a scarlet letter, you know, warning people basically not to trust what is said. And that was even before all these ridiculous like disclaimers and stuff like that. That's telling you like, okay, like before you retweet this, you should know that uh, this is Russian or China or Iranian uh, state media or what have you. And uh, therefore, you should probably like not believe it, which is basically what they're saying. Well, and there are so many ways. I mean, honestly, someone could write a book on all of the ways that big tech has worked to minimize uh, anti-war voices, anti-imperialist voices like you guys, like myself, it's not just the tagging of the Scarlet Letter, which uh, many people who were at RT got. Oh, God, my favorite example of that is that they, w- within days of the invasion beginning, uh, they tagged Ed Schultz as Russian state-affiliated media on Twitter, even though he'd been dead since 2018. So, you know, they have no shame in how horrific they're going to be in this this uh, McCarthyism. But I, I, you know, like to talk about all of the ways they're suppressing our voices that are more kind of quiet and more in the, you know, people don't realize. Like I put up a video the other day that clearly did far worse than my other videos. And I had people email me and say that video is the only one that I've tried to watch today where it just endlessly buffers and people can't actually get it to play for very long. Uh, I've had people email me and say my Facebook posts have no share button at the bottom of them. Uh, I know that many of my emails that go out to my email list, uh, uh, if you have a Google or a Gmail account, 
it'll you'll first of all it'll be put in a spam filter and then if you find it and you try and open it there'll be a warning thing that comes up and says this looks like uh, spam are you sure you want to uh, this looks like phishing are you sure you want to click on it and all of these things you know you lose a certain percentage with each of these things a certain percentage of people are not going to keep watching when a video is buffering a certain percentage are not going to open uh, a, vi- a, a email that says this looks dangerous and they they achieve their aim which is greatly decreasing the number of people that see any of this content. Yeah. And it's interesting that even when you, um, you know, go to Twitter, like, cause when you click on that little state media designation, it actually takes you to a help center page that explains it. And this one piece that says how state affiliated media accounts are defined. It says state affiliated media is defined as outlets where the state exercises control over editorial content through financial <laughs> resources, direct or indirect political pressures and or control over production and distribution accounts belonging to state affiliated media entities, their editors in chief and or their prominent staff may be labeled. And, and here's a, a, a part that really got me state financed media organizations with editorial independence like the BBC in the UK or NPR in the US, for example, are not defined as state affiliated media for the purposes of this policy. So they just decided that state media <laughs> platforms in the UK and the US have editorial independence. They got it. They, they just know it. Meanwhile, the rest, if you work for a media, a state media company in Russia, China, Iran, or, or what have you, well, then the assumption is that you don't have editorial independence and therefore you must uh, uh, be labeled, which is incredible. Because I don't know about you, Lee, I never got an email, text message from yeah. Twitter saying, hey, we have some questions about your editorial independence. Because, you know, I, I don't know about you, Lee, but, you know, the, 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 in by any means necessary, we produce 10 hours of content a week, right, on the news. And five of those hours are live. Uh, but I've never gotten any communication from the Kremlin or any Kremlin representative saying, hey, you all better talk about uh, X, Y, Z or like we'll shut you down or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Now, I, now, I don't know what the process was like with uh, with your piece at RT, but I mean, we basically, you know, set the, the editorial line for, you know, what is discussed in the analysis on by any means necessary, which is precisely why people enjoy it, you know? Yeah, I've never, my, the entire time I was at RT, eight, eight years and 500 episodes, I was never told what to say. I wrote all my own stuff, unlike every other uh, comedy news host on TV you've ever seen. Uh, I came up with my own topics, did my own research, never was told to say anything. And it's really the polar opposite of how we know it works at these other cable news networks. Uh, We have many people who have left these other networks and talked about how strict they were and how much they were told what to say or told what not to say. Uh, It happens endlessly at MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. And, And so it's kind of hilarious that the network where you actually have freedom is labeled as state media and the networks where you don't. And, and, and outlets like New York Times that explicitly say they go to the state, to the national security state, and say, is this article okay, which is the definition of the state exercising power over the content, uh, those are not 
those don't count as uh, state affiliated media. media. It's, it's an utter joke. And people should be repulsed at this level of censorship, this level of attack on freedom of press. And, of course, you've not heard a peep from your mainstream media about the fact that RT America was shut down or about the fact that journalists like Ben Norton are being attacked. None of it is is they're they're not defending us. They're not coming to our aid. None of it. It, it, Rather, it's the opposite. They're trying harder to make sure that independent voices are shut down. It's it's repulsive and disgusting. But I will say this to give a, a moment of uh, a, a hope, a light at the end of the tunnel here. I do believe that this is a long-term, uh, several years effort uh, in which the internet brought us freedom of information. It brought us an information revolution. And now your mainstream corporate airwaves that are answering to the rich, the powerful, the richest people in the world, they are trying to shut it all down. They are trying to stop Americans and other people around the world from finding out the truth. And I think it's largely not working. I I am very hopeful that the cat is out of the bag. People know they are being fed garbage. And hopefully many people have and will continue to wake up to the reality around us rather than just giving in to this ridiculous, propagandistic, pathetic, lying uh, state apparatus of media that we face here in the United States. Yeah, and you know what no one ever talks about, Lee, in in this whole conversation about uh, press freedom, editorial independence, misinformation, what never seems to get discussed is why people with our politics and our analysis tend to be found on these alternative platforms, be they state-affiliated media or not. And people always want to put the onus on us. How could you work for a a Russian state media and all these things? I don't understand why the onus is on us. Why aren't you asking that question to these platforms that are ran by billionaires and corporations who have far more resources than we do, who get uh, way more reach than we do? Because one thing that I didn't mention in that uh, whole uh, Twitter help centerpiece is they also just straight up say that uh, state affiliated media uh, uh, accounts will not be uh, amplified. They say in the case of state affiliated media entities, Twitter will not recommend or amplify accounts or their tweets with these labels to people. So they're literally saying that they're going to deprioritize state affiliated media accounts in uh, the algorithm as if it wasn't difficult enough uh, to 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 try to reach people. But why is no one asking these platforms, the people that run them, why you don't hear someone with the opinions of a Lee Camp or a Gerald Horn or a Margaret Kimberly or a Danny Haifong or or or, or any of the folks that we have on this show and uh, uh, many that you all had on, you know, uh, uh, your show on RT there as well, uh, uh, Lee, which, you know, I, now that I think about it, I actually uh, was able to attend a live taping a few years ago. And that was that was pretty mm-hmm. fun. And uh, but, you know, so my thing is, don't ask me, ask Rupert Murdoch, ask Jeff Bezos. Ask these, you know, these billionaires and these captains of industry and all of these people who literally, you know, help determine what the American people see as legitimate. Why it is that they're so afraid and so averse 
of any alternative opinion. Now, uh, once upon a time, you may have seen one or two anti-war people on some of these mainstream platforms, but that era is long gone. And so you can't even, yeah. even the mention of uh, something that goes against the imperialist war drive uh, is cast as misinformation or conspiracy theory in the case of the United States. And I think that that really just sort of reveals the reality of uh, the whole situation. So, you know, I, I feel like it's actually not on us to like find space in these platforms that have made it clear that they're not interested in our uh, perspectives, in our voices. I don't think I don't think the burden of that is on us. I think it's the burden of those platforms to make space uh, for those voices, yeah. which they consciously decide not to. And I, for one, am not banking that they ever really will, or at least not as long as this system is in place, you know? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, many of the people that were at RT America before it shut down uh, had come from and, and gotten famous on other mainstream outlets, uh, but they were ultimately shut down for coming out mostly against war. Uh, you know, I've gone through this list before, but Chris Hedges was there and he was forced out as a as a Pulitzer Prize winner, no less, forced out of the New York Times for being for coming out against the Iraq war. Jesse Ventura was going to be a tentpole of MSNBC and they paid him upwards of $10 million just to get out of his contract so that he wouldn't be on their airwaves being anti-war. Uh, Ed Schultz maybe didn't have to do with war, but he ended up forced out of MSNBC simply for supporting Bernie Sanders and being for health care for all. So these are the type of people that ended up at uh, uh, RT America. And I myself had been a writer for Huffington Post and had stopped writing for them. A comedy news writer had stopped writing for them when they told me I couldn't call Donald Rumsfeld a war criminal. So, yeah, you've got a great point, which is don't ask why we're at these networks. Ask why we had to go to those networks. Ask why those are the only networks that would allow you to be anti-war. And that needs to be the question that is asked by Americans again and again and again until we have spaces for this type of speech and this type of information. And, and you know, I, I am excited to, to continue on. And so anybody who wants to keep following my stuff, I'm at patreon.com slash Lee Camp. But it is tough without the, uh, the airwaves that have been shut down for any anti-war voices. Yeah, and it's just so obvious when you, you know, read these smear articles and watch these uh, videos that they that they don't really engage or make any deep study um, of uh, of some of these, you know, shows and platforms like by any mean necessary, not even to uh, agree or disagree with it. But when you talk about a show like by any means necessary, for instance, that's been on, you know, maybe uh, five or six years. I've been on about five years and you just look at the range of the things that we discuss. I mean, we talk about racist police terror. Certainly we talk about war and imperialism. We talk about pop culture and movies and music and, and TV shows and all these sorts of things. And we talk to former political prisoners and scholars and academics and, and authors and musicians. And, you know, we, we had one guest who went on to become the president of Bolivia. And so, you know, I, uh, 
I, I, you know, I, I stand by the work that I do by any means necessary, but the mainstream media and its smearing of uh, alternative um, platforms is not in good faith. But I don't expect that from um, a, a mainstream media industry that doesn't operate in good faith to begin with. Like, why would I trust your analysis on what is and what isn't like, quote unquote, good or bad media when you're a part of the same apparatus that lied us into this devastating war in Iraq or, or amplified, you know, ridiculous things like, um, you know, Muammar Gaddafi feeding his soldiers Viagra so they're more equipped to rape women. I mean, this is what the U.S. mainstream media is feeding people. It has the audacity to call us misinformation and propaganda and things like this. It really is a, a disgusting thing. And what keeps you know me going and, and keeps me hopeful, number one, is the, the support of our listeners and things like that, along with the knowledge that, I mean, what we're saying and what we're doing is correct uh, because what we're advocating for above all else on by any means necessary is a mass movement of the struggling peoples of the world to overturn a system that would skew the consciousness of its people like that, telling them that uh, war is good and okay to support, meanwhile, robbing them of basic resources. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We want to thank Lee Camp so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.